Welcome, everyone, to Curious Church Podcast. You know, you really have to turn it on when you start a podcast. This isn't how I normally sound or act, is it? No, not at all. Normally you say, and we're back. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And we're back. We are back. Doing, uh, do you have an idea to set things up? Because I would love to just start. Yeah, well, I mean, sure. We're, we, we have an extra special episode, and there are a few reasons why. Oh, okay. Yeah, I love this. One reason is that I we have... I love any list, so you're doing a great job. <laughs> okay, here's my list of top four people in this room. <laughs> in no particular order. No particular order. No particular we should maybe order. even go alphabetical. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'll go by microphone order. Oh, this is a little behind the scenes. My microphone is is microphone one. And it always has been listening. Always has been. And always will be. (laughs) As long as I have a say. From day one, Aaron said, I will be number one. Number one. one. But Matt, you are a reliable number two. That's what I do. Like a lieutenant. Just loyal support. (laughs) Back up, Matt. And in third place third place i mean <laughs> number three no, no particular, particular order, order. yeah <laughs> just the way the microphones are our guest again for two episodes in a row dr reverend kevin adams oh, oh i got right. invited back yeah he's back you know it's going to be serious because we're not only have kevin here but we have another return guest uh, you're a doctor our, too yes yeah. reverend doctor. i'm not a reverend oh, we, <laughs> no we're gonna change, we're gonna guest change reverend that, dr libby backfish welcome back libby thanks so you're number four, but you're really number one in our hearts. This this episode, this I feel like, is sort of like the TV show that has, um, you know, a special guest actor or actress come on, mm. and then they have them back because their ratings took such a good bump <laughs> when that actor was on. This so. is like Tom Selleck on Friends. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. And it's like, oh, actually, can we get you back on a recurring role? Uh, so we're really just trying to juice juice the ratings here by having two all-star guests. Now, Matt, why would we have four people in here? And why, well, I guess we used to when Sam was hosting. Well, I guess we we would have four. Oh, yeah. true. And yeah. then we finally yeah. pared down to the number we <laughs> so wanted. We cut yeah. the fat. Got rid of him, <laughs> didn't we? <laughs> That's right. Why on we earth are. would we would we have Libby and Kevin like why does one room need so much brain power? Well, that, that's that's a really good question, Aaron. <laughs> and uh, well, in part because we want to have a well. Let me back up. We think all of our conversations are meaningful and life changing and oh, significant. Right. Oh, this is good. Uh, but yeah. today we want to have a significant conversation about something we really haven't delved into, and we thought, you know, what's better than two brains? Not just three, but four. <laughs> two squared brains. Especially if my two brain squared, is one of them, you're going to need some more. Yeah, yeah. You need some more brains. Yeah. So what what are we talking about? Yeah. So we're going to be talking about communion or Eucharist or Lord's Supper. You might have heard it of talked about in any of those ways, depending on your tradition, or you might have never heard about it. So we'll talk a little bit about that too. Right. But particularly, we're going to focus in on children and children's interaction with Lord's Supper and what that looks like. Mm. And uh, there's kind of different people think differently about this. Some people think children maybe shouldn't participate. We're going to have a conversation about maybe some of the reasons we think they should. At least that's that's kind of a spoiler version, I think. Yeah. We'll see we'll see actually where end. I would encourage you new listeners or long-time listeners if this is a new idea to you to hang in there and uh, I, I recently was kind of turned around on the idea on this idea. So, um, I think you'll find this to be very interesting. 
Yeah, that's great. And I think one of the things to remember is, um, you know, one of the things we're always talking about on this podcast is wanting to be curious and wanting to explore. And sometimes that curiosity is about like things we might believe. And often we say like those beliefs then map to certain practices. Hmm. In some sense, this conversation is a conversation exploring things we believe and exploring how our practices might be catching up to what we believe. And so, hmm. uh, but that's always a process. It's a pro- we experience, I think, all of this in our lives with any number of things. We might believe it's bad to pollute the planet, but our practices can take a long time to catch up with that or align with that in some ways. And so uh, I think what I'm saying is be willing to have some patience with yourself through this conversation, which really I'm just echoing what you said so well, Aaron. So <laughs> moving <Cutting> on. <laughs> Um, how should we start? You have some questions, I think, that are a good. Maybe we should frame communion as a whole, yeah, so as that, an idea first. So that's what I thought. We we talk about like we have kind of some common buckets that we've talked about, and so we probably talked about communion tangentially in some of our worship conversations that we've had because that's kind of inevitable at some point. I couldn't point you to which episode we talk about it, but it happens. But we've never really had a conversation about communion or Eucharist or Lord's Supper, we might all use different words depending on our background. Um, And so one thing that I kind of, I gave homework, I don't often give homework coming into a podcast, but to everyone here, I said, why don't we all come with kind of a one sentence description of what communion is? Oh, shoot. (laughs) Uh, I need okay. I'll go last. <laughs> okay, we'll go around the circle. We're gonna start with Libby because Libby has this and other notes, and then we'll go to me. And then yes. we'll go to Reverend Doctor Kevin. I Adams. shamelessly have this written down. So this is what I would say: communion means in general. Okay, I'd say communion is a means of grace and a physical sign of the new covenant that Jesus gives His people to remember and proclaim His death and to be united with Jesus and with the body of Christ. A plus. Okay, we made a, a huge mistake having plus. Libby go first. So let's she cut this out. Clean I'm up gonna here. go first. Okay. No. Yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. So what? Like, pick out the few. Like, what are the three kind of main? Like, I heard like covenant. I heard grace. Mm-hmm. I heard unity with Jesus. Mm-hmm. I was trying to get all, all those these, things in there. You really? <laughs> did you have death and resurrection in there? I had death, not resurrection. Okay, not Oops. resurrection. No, that's that's okay. I mean, we're not. We're... No, mine's okay. That's great. So here's, here's mine, uh, a formative practice that helps us experience grace and mysteriously unites us with Jesus and through that with one another. Mm. Okay. You know, I can't do better than Libby's. Yours was, <laughs> yours was good too, Matt, but I'm saying I can't do better than Libby's. So I'll just try to say something very simple, like communion is a <clears throat> means of grace that is also a participation in the dying and rising and becoming new in Christ. It's a union with Christ. That's what I'll say. Yeah, that's good. That's great. Um, I would, I've, I've always enjoyed thinking of it as the, the family meal of the church. Yeah. Um, and when, particularly how we do it at Granite Springs is sort of, it's um, especially compelling because there's movement and suddenly people are moving out of their seats. So you see, um, like Libby was saying, like it's participatory. So you see people moving and engaging with their faith in kind of a physical way, which is something I really like about it. Not a definition, your but you guys covered definitions Your assignment was well. one wow. sentence, so <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out. No, that's great. I mean, the, so cards on the table, the reason I was curious just to hear that is because it is, um, in some sense, it's a, deep, it's a really deep practice, right? This isn't 
this isn't a shallow practice that we do. And so then, you know, we, we would expect all of our definitions to be exactly the same because there's only kind of one layer and one uh, particular frame to understand it. But putting it in a sentence, I think we we all bring up different things. So Aaron talks about the family meal. There's language about covenant. There's language about means of grace. There's dying and rising participation language, which is just to say, like in some sense, we're biting off more than we can chew whenever we start talking about uh, whenever we start talking about God and period, but even when we start talking about sort of the ways that we engage him through these sorts of practices, um, which I mean, is kind of wonderful. That's part of our journey, I think is deepening into faith. So that, that was, I think just helpful to acknowledge and say, but then the question, the, the question we really want to delve into today with maybe, a uh, just a like footnote that one day we will do a fuller episode on communion itself, right? Because that warrants probably a series of episodes. Okay. This is a little teaser for yeah. that. This is a little it's teaser okay, for that. That's good. So if you haven't listened to those future episodes, go listen to them now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one day they'll exist. Um, but what we want to talk about today is who is who comes to the table, right? And so, and particularly, we're going to be talking about uh, children, but Let's just start with this question. Who is welcome at the table? Because if you, different people might have experienced this in different ways. It's possible that you're listening and you've gone to a church where communion was sort of um, a meal or something that was sort of after a service that only members of the church were invited to. I've heard about it being done that way. So only people who were members of the church might be you've been in a church where it was just anyone could come. It might be that you were sort of told you, there was a certain way that it was framing. So to kind of open this question to get us started, I throw to the three of you, like, who is welcome at the table? Who is this meal for? Well, it's interesting, Matt, how different traditions practice this in different ways, uh, the sacrament. So, for instance, if you, I just heard a story today, someone was at a Catholic cathedral and went in line and when he got up to the priest who was distributing the elements he said i'm not catholic and the priest took the bread away from him and that's emblematic of the mm. catholic tradition which says only roman catholics can participate in roman catholic communion i have a friend who's an orthodox priest and the same is true in orthodox setting only orthodox christians can participate in communion they do in their uh, various hospitable way have a kind of hospitality bread that non-orthodox mm. people can share while they're uh, they're present for communion. But I think in, um, I want to say in the best of uh, Protestant tradition, I don't know, we could talk about what that means, but uh, <laughs> it's anyone who's been baptized is welcome to participate in communion. Uh, sometimes folks put a profession of faith in there. Um, I would go back to what some 20-something folks said in the 1500s. One of my favorite things about communion is said in the Heidelberg Catechism where it said, communion is for all of those who recognize their sin and feel sorry for it, who want to understand that Jesus has covered their sin and made them new, and then who desire to live in a way that reflects this new grace. If, if you fall into one of those, if those three things are true about you, you should come forward for communion. And that's really been the framing, kind of the main framing we've had at Grant Springs through the years, that those wise 20-somethings going back 500 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so recognizing... <clears throat> Recognizing your sin, understanding you have some regrets in your life, things you're feeling uh -huh. bad about. Uh, recognizing that Jesus is the one who makes those things clean, that wipes the clates clean for you forever. Yeah. 
uh, brings you into covenant, we might say in other language. And then uh, having a desire to live a new life, a redeemed life, a graceful life. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a one, we're not talking about this as a one-time practice, right? Because uh, some, I could, I could hear someone thinking that, oh, so it's like something I do when I get converted. This is, a, this is an ongoing practice. Right. Because we're sort of always recognizing these things uh, and, and confessing right. them again and again. Right. Recognizing our soul always needs food. We need soul food. We need to be nourished by our yeah. faith. So one way to think about it is communion is a living out of our baptism. If our baptism is a one-time entrance into the covenant family of faith, and communion is, a, is the other side of baptism, if you will. It's the more daily or more weekly dying and rising representative. Right. Yeah. That's great. Maybe you have thoughts? Well, I guess... That's my, would... that's my seamless transition. <laughs> that was nice. Well done, Matt. I would just raise the question, since, Kevin, you mentioned covenant, and yeah. it's tied to baptism, Eucharist is tied to baptism, kind of living that out. And since we, as our church in the Reformed faith, baptize infants, or at least that's um, our preferred method, um, I wonder if we could maybe extend that invitation to the table to children who aren't old enough to articulate a confession of faith, their need for Christ and so forth, but who are members of the covenant family. Um, I, Aaron, I like how you put it, that this is a meal for the covenant family. And that's the same kind of language we see throughout scripture, even in the Old Testament, where God is calling all people to these covenant meals, even the babies. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if maybe... It would be. I don't want to push up against um, Heidelberg folks, but um, but maybe, maybe well, I they think could they be would really get the spirit of this, Libby. I think they would love those. Two. We'd, it'd be fun to have those two here, and we could ask them. Then <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it would be I, six. I think, that, yeah, that would make six of us. It's interesting. The tradition we're part of, the Christian Reformed Church, uh, thought about this uh, long and hard, and about ten years ago had a whole. What one of our favorite things is study committees. So we don't just jump into action. We study things for a while, and rightly so. We had a whole study committee on should children participate in communion, and they came back with a very solid, very winning, of course, of course they should. But this was a relatively new thought uh, to some. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, has anyone ever been to a big like family gathering, like a big Thanksgiving or something, and you have the adult table? Yes. And the kids' table? Oh. <laughs> Tell us about those memories. <laughs> <laughs> Let us delve into your past, well, Mr. I, Aaron. I, it was very, it's a big deal when you get to not be, have to be at the kids' table anymore. Like, oh, you're old enough to be with the grown-ups. And that's sort of how, that's the tradition that I had with my, with my participating in communion was I had to kind of go through a process and uh, do a public profession of faith before... Um, before I was allowed to participate in communion, um, and so it's that um, it's that kind of gatekeeping that I think is important to sort of well, well, I think well intentioned by you know whoever created it. Um, I <laughs> the more I think about it, the more I think, well, why? How about we have like one big table where there are adults and kids like all sitting together? So that's a picture of the covenant. Yeah. Well. Oh, go ahead, Libby. I was just going to say, each professing their faith in whatever way they can muster at the right. age of right. one or two or three. I mean, a baby can, I would argue, profess faith just in their natural ability to trust 
and in the mystery of God's salvation, I would hope and pray that they are in some way trusting salvifically in the covenant God. When they're two and three, they can articulate that a teeny bit better. Five and six, even more. But I wonder if we have a set number of questions and criteria, how arbitrary that becomes, especially when we add into the mix, what about people with mental disabilities? Um, Yeah, I'd much rather err on the side of a more open table. Mm -hmm. Okay, let let me just back us up a little bit. No, we're rolling forward, Matt. (laughs) There's no backing up. (laughs) Well, I'm just going to voice that some people might be hearing us use this word covenant, and they might not be avid Curious Church podcast listeners, which we're not going to shame you uh, for that fact, but, you know, there's lots of other episodes... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but they might hear this word covenant and think, I'm not clear on what that means. It sounds like a lot of this conversation is grounded in this idea of covenant. So what do we mean when we say covenant or covenant people of God? Maybe I'll throw this to Libby. Uh, what, what, what do we mean when we're saying that? For someone who has never heard this word before, what would, how would you describe or explain covenant to them? Yeah, so covenant is a binding relationship made between God and his people, sheerly out of grace, where he promises to be with them and protect them and save them and, and for them to be a family. And so in Old Testament um, language of salvation, if you were a member of the covenant, if you were a member of Israel and, um, and, perf- and you know, had, were faithful to the Old Testament God, then then you participated in these feasts, in these family, household, religious meals, like Passover, for example. And if we see the Lord's Supper as maybe a fulfillment of some of those festive family, household meals, um, I think that puts us in good ground to include everybody who was a member of that covenant community. We would call it the church now or the body of Christ, but back then it was more that they would talk about Israel or the covenant community. So in some sense, we're, we're using, so covenant both is a, there's a sort of a vertical, sometimes people like there's a relationship between God, but then it also has horizontal impact, right? It sort of brings us together as we sort of share in covenant together. And you're saying that this is sort of embodied beautifully in these shared meals. Uh, I can imagine someone asking, but like, it's not, it's not a meal that you that we're sharing in mm. communion. We come and we get a small piece of bread and we get, we dip that in a cup. So we just got a little bit of juice, not nearly enough to slake my thirst. Uh, so like, so how is this still sort of a, a covenant or a community meal? How do, how do we think kind of about that? Well, originally it was a meal, right? Historically it was a meal and now it's just a small sampling reminder of that meal. This is a good idea for future worship services, though, to just <laughs> really, like, meal. every Sunday. just Hence the uh, church potluck. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> every week potluck, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's helpful. I think that, yeah, there's history, right, to it being a meal, which is why we talk about it as a meal. But um, in some sense, it's, oh, the thing it's pointing to, so, like sacraments are in some sense, they're means of grace. So they're ways that we receive grace. They're also signs. So they point to something that is bigger than them, right? That's kind of a, just a key kind of element. Like baptism, there's water, but it's not literally that that, that, that water is cleaning you. It's pointing to something much right. more significant. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the reasons it's okay to not have sort of a full chicken leg or something like that as part of your... Uh, sacramental meal is because actually what's important is not how much you eat or consume. That's never been, in fact, even in the historical picture of primary importance. It's it's what it's pointing towards, which is in itself plentiful yeah. on its own. Right. 
Yeah. Um, I wonder, so Kevin, you kind of said, processing this a little bit more, so we had the Heidelberg Catechism that talked about recognizing. Then we've talked about, well, there's, there's covenant that helps us understand maybe who comes to the table. So there's these kind of ideas of, like, if you're part of the family, welcome. But then there's this also kind of layer of uh, we should be recognizing in some way. Like, I think, uh, so you've expressed that the writers of the catechism who use this recognition language would get the spirit of what we're doing. But I can imagine a lot of people just thinking, but, okay, I understand. Maybe I, I even hear, like, the family meal image. But, like, if my kid doesn't get what's going on, should they really be doing this thing? Like, and like if they're, they're not, uh, they don't have an awareness of what it means. Like, do they need to understand what it means in order to participate? And, and if not, why not? Yeah, I think the truth is none of us really understand what we're doing most of the time for most of life, right? So if we start with that, if we start with that, if we say a child who's two or three may not understand communion, well, I would argue neither does an 85-year-old who's been in church 84 years. It's beyond us. It's bigger mm. than us. And your point about communion and baptism has signs and seals that point to things beyond us. I think that's true for kids as well. It's kind of an accident of history. Maybe Libby can chime in. The separation, this, uh, um, when I suggested that the Heidelberg Catechism had this three-part framework, I wasn't suggesting that that automatically includes kids. I think it, it, it are, doesn't automatically exclude children. I think it can include them. Uh, the Orthodox folks, when you get baptized, you get uh, anointed with oil, and you get a someone dips their finger in the communion wine and puts it on your tongue. So you've been baptized, you've had communion, and you've been anointed all at once. That mm. makes sense to me. And it was sort of an accident of history, especially Roman Catholic history, where the priest, um, the local person could baptize, but you needed a bishop to do confirmation. And so they couldn't be, in, in some of these rural places, they couldn't be sure the bishop would get there in time. So they separated baptism and confirmation so the confirmation could happen when the bishop was there. And confirmation being, in this case, sort of this, like... This sort of okay, moment you, of you discerning, I understand now, yeah, I know yeah, the yeah. ritual. So that it's a bit of an accident of history that we've been participating in for a long time. There's also the text um, in 1 Corinthians 11 that was taken seriously, that if you don't discern the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. But I don't think that has to do with a child participating with communion, and the CRC has had that conversation for the last 10 years. It's not that. It's been mistaken as that. Hmm. Um, it's it, that really was about discerning. Hey, the poor folks are our sisters and brothers, and we want to include them. Folks were having a big meal with nice wine and right. drinking it all before the slaves could get off from work late at night, um, or the servants. So, yeah, that, it, that's a misunderstanding of a text that I, I think also kind of fed that separation, uh, rather than uh, lobbying. I, I would really lobby for Libby's talking about this inclusion, this connectedness, and full participation. Yeah, I think it's helpful for you, I mean, to name sort of this 1 Corinthians 11 passage. I, you know, when we started having this conversation, um, you know, that was kind of, I, I didn't know where that was in the Bible, but I knew somewhere it was like, yeah. I better do this the right way or, or right. else things are not you better good for get me. it right. Yeah, but get it right. And so I, you know, I had that in the back of my mind and I'm thinking, well, you know, how, how should I think about 
that passage, I I, I hear Libby opening her Bible even now. Yeah, so we I might get we a, go for it. It's a really big Bible. It's <laughs> impressive. <laughs> so it has extra extra books in it that we the rest of us don't have. Right. That, that no, Bible. Her Bible is mostly Old Testament. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Newsflash: Everyone's is. <laughs> oh, 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 oh wow! <laughs> but one of the things I think you know is like. Um, there's a couple of things to say here is we're not trying to create a new tradition. We right. in fact think that this whole conversation is trying to live into a deeper tradition and that scripture really matters to us. So we want to take that sensitively and hear it and hear it for what it's saying. So passages that talk or maybe seem to suggest some sort of, is there a cognitive layer here or is there sort of a recognition of what does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? We want to pay attention to that. Right, and give that its its due. So Libby, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about what's happening in this this chapter in First Corinthians. Could you read that t- t- um, passage to us? Sure. Too, so the listeners yeah. kind of know what's and, happening. Yeah, and I want listeners to be aware too that this was written to a specific community in Corinth who had their own problems, and Paul's calling out those problems. And right before and right after the passage I'm about to read. Uh, Paul is explaining what they're doing wrong in communion. He's saying, as Kevin was saying, I'm going to start in verse 21 of chapter 11. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I have received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another." If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And so he's really um, bookended that statement with this, don't, you know, stomp on the poor, let Mm. everyone share in this meal. That's what he's talking about when they're supposed to be discerning themselves and eating in a worthy manner, share. So that's helpful because I've always heard, you know, or growing up, I often heard the let each person kind of examine themselves as sort of like... You know, the music would uh, quiet and the lights would dim. And it was this, okay, we're called to like each of us reflect maybe on the past week, uh, maybe reflect particularly on the ways that you've sinned. And then you can come to the table. Uh, That's just the tradition I kind of grew up in. And I think that's perfectly appropriate to take the spiritual principle like that and apply it. In what way are you unworthy? You know, Mm -hmm. reflect on that before coming to the table. I think that's totally appropriate. But just because some people in Corinth and some people today misuse this celebration doesn't mean that we need to exclude people who are incapable of reflecting at that level. So I'm thinking specifically of Old Testament sacrifices, which were also not supposed to be misused. So I'm thinking Isaiah chapter 
chapter 1, verse 14 through 18, where Isaiah calls them out for trampling um, his temple and his courtyard and giving these sacrifices without a genuine heart with hypocrisy. Um, but that doesn't mean that they should have just not done the sacrifices at all, or that children shouldn't have been included in those meals. So I think in the same kind of parallel way, just because some people were abusing the Lord's Supper, it doesn't mean that children would be excluded. Does that sound right? Did Sounds, I go on a tangent there? No, no, no. <laughs> That's well <laughs> no, said. No, it's, it's very well said, and I think it, it's helpful. And I think, yeah, like you're saying, it's not that uh, we ought not to be reflective, but that doesn't mean that that becomes an exclusive sort of checkbox uh, for people, I mean, you meant you talked about people uh, with disabilities at the beginning, right? Uh, this passage would we, we would certainly not want to say like Jesus does not apply to them or reach out to them, or that's just so far from the gospel and its story, or that this passage therefore bans excludes them from the table if they're unable to examine themselves, whatever that actually means or looks like. Well, I wonder if it if it looks a little bit like this because I think the temptation is to think self examination, okay. No, 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 no. Okay, I'm good enough to do this. Mm. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, let's see. What was my week like? Uh, yep. Okay, I, I did passed. it. I, I passed. passed. Yeah. yeah. I Whereas, got at least a 70 <laughs> this week. That's, That's actually grade. the opposite yeah. of what we need to be doing right <laughs> Where maybe Right. So maybe the self-reflection is, oh, man, I, you know, I blew it in like every day, every hour of every day, I'm blowing it. So the self-reflection can be, I am unworthy for this. I need this more than ever. Maybe that's part of what self-examination yeah. is. You've maybe heard me say before, my great-grandmother grew up in this same tradition, and there was communion four times a year, and the week before there would be a, a Sunday for examination. So in the evening service, you would have a service of examination to see then if you were ready for communion the next week. And as I understand it, I never met my great-grandmother. She never took communion because she never felt worthy. Oh, and wow. the pastor part of me, the, the great-grandson of me says, oh, grandma. And the pastor part of me says, oh, grandma, like you, you never were worthy, <laughs> and you never will be worthy, and neither is your great-great-grandson or anybody he knows or any of us. We're, none of us are worthy. That's not what it's about. It's about receiving mm -hmm. grace and receiving food for our soul. So well-intended. I think she was part of that tradition that took it so seriously that they maybe uh, misunderstood it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the fact that we aren't worthy is the very reason why we need it, which is another reason why I think we need to open it to the children. If this is something we desperately need, this is something the children desperately need, and far be it from us to hinder them. And maybe we misunderstand what it means to discern the body of Christ. We think sometimes it means understanding an outline of Romans or having prayed a Jesus prayer, a simple prayer of accepting Jesus as your Savior. But what if instead what Paul meant, based on that context, was to see the body of Christ as the body of Christ, like the people in the room. So then if a three-year-old or a five-year-old or an eight-year-old watches people come up in walkers and people of different uh, backgrounds and socioeconomic classes, Maybe what they are doing right then is beholding and discerning the body of Christ in all its beauty, and for them to participate really deepens their understanding. So the act of participating actually helps them understand grace. Mm -hmm. I, kn I know one of our deacons who helped serve communion said to me, I cry every time we do this yeah. because of the people, as people come forward, all of us with our hands out receiving the elements. And what a beautiful thing for a child to learn to discern mm -hmm. the body of Christ in that way. Yeah, like Matt said, your definition earlier—it's formative. Yeah. So we don't don't we want it to be formative for our kids yes. too? 
So on my, I have a little page of questions that I shared with everyone. And I think uh, on one section, I had some quote unquote challenging questions uh, because Christians have been grappling with some of these things. And a lot of it comes down to how do you think about sort of um, prerequisites, so to speak, which is really a, a horrible word, but, and some of us might have like trauma from college or something like that, thinking about prerequisites. But how do we think about what, what takes place before we come to the table? And we've talked a little bit maybe about examining and what that might mean and discerning the body of Christ. But one of the things we frame this whole conversation in is covenant, and that this is a covenant family meal. And so why wouldn't anyone who's part of the covenant get to participate? But there's a piece of this that we have alluded to, I think, earlier in the conversation, and that baptism I think, uh, and that this meal is even a way to remember our baptism, a sort of dying and rising. That was even baked into Kevin's definition, I think, or his yeah. one-sentence description. So, if baptism is a way into the covenant, how do we think about communion and baptism working together? Do you, do you, to, to put it maybe provocatively, does my child have to be baptized to participate in the Lord's Supper? Mm. Well. Let me begin by saying one of my favorite things about our church is we have so many people from so many different Christian backgrounds and from pe people from the background of I have no Christian background. Um, so I love that we are the kind of community where it's not monolithic in terms of how people have experienced faith in the past or experienced faith now or experienced faith in the future. But we come together with what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity, kind of think the deep, basic, main things of the faith. So I just love that. So there are some streams of the Christian tradition where people are baptized as um, young adults or maybe uh, late elementary school or as adults. Uh, our tradition and the main of the Christian church for most of Christian history has been to covenant baptism. So I, I would simply say, if it, let's, let's say you've come into church and it's your 10th uh, time and you find yourself saying, I believe this, I want, my f I want to receive this soul food. And then you take communion, and then you think, oh, no, I should have been baptized first. It's not an oh, no. It's an oh, yes, now I should be baptized. Like, it's this opportunity mm. to say, of course I want to be baptized. I would just experience communion as a means of grace. Don't I want to experience baptism as a means of grace? So normally, if there's an order, baptism is kind of the beginning of your faith journey or the kind of acknowledging that Jesus is the one who saves you and redeems you in the whole cosmos. But if you get that out of order... That's that's okay. Welcome to the human race. Um, and uh, does that right? That's how that's how I would think about it. Yeah, that's helpful. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have any other anything to add to that? Nope. Aaron, you have anything to add to that? Well, just a few corrections. <laughs> <laughs> then you do have passages in the Old Testament saying no one uncircumcised can partake in these meals. Right. But I think what was happening is that that's the typical way things happen. Right. You can't just let anybody in who hasn't committed to this covenant or whose family hasn't committed to this covenant just party with the meals, you know, whereas that's not necessarily what's happening with the baptism, Lord's Supper order. Yeah. And that's, that's wonderful pastoral and uh, church family life conversation. If someone is participating in communion and they say they're cavalier about it and tell their friends afterwards, yeah, I don't mean it. I don't believe any of this stuff. None of that means anything to me, but I do it just because I, I like the girl in front of me mm -hmm. and I have a crush on her and I'm in high school. Well, that's a, that's a conversation the faith community has about integrity and about honesty and about 
uh, what this really means. And, and the, yeah, I think that's helpful. No, I think that's great, Kevin. I think one way to say it is like, sometimes you'll frame communion in this way. Like everything that needs to be done has been done by Jesus. In other words, like the prerequisites are met. Right. Like so the registrar has gone in and he's checked off, you know, that high school English course that you had. Like that's taken care of. There's nothing that you have to do to do that. Now, baptism is sort of like the, if you're joining this community, if, you, if you're a follower, like, of course you want to be baptized. That's the way we're going to kind of think about it. And we're going to encourage everyone who hasn't been baptized to be baptized all the way from 99 down to a newborn, right? Because right. we think that's a wonderful means of grace and a deeply meaningful kind of way to enter the body of Christ. But the prerequisites are already checked off. On this, I'd love to hear just so we, well, we have three parents in the room and one non-parent, which is me, to be clear. Uh, <laughs> do you have a dog yet? Yeah, I don't know. Get a no dog, dog, Matt. No Get dog a dog yet. today. No, I won't do it. That's a whole nother beef. Uh, Animals at communion will be a separate <laughs> yeah, yeah, conversation. That, that is a separate conversation. But I'd love to hear, um, I imagine there's parents listening to this and parents processing and there's, um, you know, maybe all kinds of things going off and different backgrounds you know they maybe you hear mom or dad kind of whispering in your ear about when you were allowed to participate in communion or maybe you're just like this world is so weird why are they even talking about it for however long we've been talking about it but i'd love to hear from you guys as parents like if it's a formative practice we talked about something that's sort of need like uh like how do you think of this about as parents like what do you as you think about your children participating in Eucharist, what does that kind of stir up for you, just as a parent, like from a parent's perspective? Do you want to go first, Aaron? Okay. Um, I, I wonder, I think a lot of parents would come at this issue with, their opinion of it will be colored by whatever their history with it yeah. is. So if you come really from from no church background and kind of a clean slate, this conversation might seem super obvious, <laughs> especially if you've spent a little time at Granite Springs. So that's a little bit of a confession on my part because initially I wasn't so sure about this because for for my own young kids who are seven and eight, I thought that, that's that's too young because that's what I was told when I was seven and eight. And mm. so there's a process I had to do. Um, so then as these conversations, and this is this podcast is kind of a, really a version of an ongoing conversation that's been happening for several months now or maybe longer. It just became so obvious to me uh, based on what we've already talked about, that uh, that we're all welcome and none of us are sort of more or less deserving or more or less welcome uh, based on age at all. Yeah. So uh, so that got me really excited about it. I also think we, again, we talk about this probably every week, but the idea, especially last episode with our talk about Ordo and slow worship and formative practices, I mean, these are the kinds of things I want my kids to grow up having done. Mm. So... Yeah, so to me, it was like, oh, this is, I'm, I'm excited about it. Yeah. I'm excited about talking to them also about kind of their own understanding of it and how, they, how they're processing it and all that kind of stuff, too. So, hmm. yeah. How about you, Libby? Yeah, I guess I would add that any parents out there who now feel added pressure <laughs> of, oh, no, now I have a choice to make, I want to alleviate that pressure a little bit because part of this covenant community is that um, it's their household and it's ultimately their choice as parents. And, um, and we see faithful members of the covenant community who 
who didn't partake in this, and it's not essential for salvation. So I was just reading through the earlier chapters in Joshua, and that whole generation hadn't, hadn't participated in the Passover. And God said, you need to do it now. But it's not like they weren't saved up until that point, mm. um, even though they hadn't been partaking of the covenant signs and sacraments and stuff. Uh, so yeah, I just want to alleviate that pressure because God knows parents have enough pressure <laughs> for yeah. decisions like that, especially important ones. But then also for myself, just speaking for myself, yeah. when I think of communion and whether kids are included or excluded, I get a little mama bear about it because mm. I definitely want my kids to feel included. I think it's most consistent with our theology of um, of covenant and who's in and who's out and with baptism. And if my kids have been marked with a covenant sign of baptism, if we're calling them Christians and not just future hopeful Christians, <laughs> then I want them participating in, in the sacraments that we are as a church. Yeah. I, I love that, Libby, because part of, so when we baptize, particularly when we baptize an infant here, Kevin will sometimes say some version of, like, our tradition is that we, kind of the whole community becomes godparents, right? Right. So there's some traditions where you sort of have one, like, you have a couple maybe come up with you and they are the godparents, but our tradition is kind of the whole church community becomes godparents to these kids. And so it just struck me, you know, it's like, you know, I don't have children, but what would it look like for Rachel and I to be like, mama bear and papa bear in terms of like militantly about these children feeling included right mm. and that's kind of the invitation i think to yeah. the whole community not just those who are going to have to process this with their particular children but what does it look like for us to be sort of so radically about making sure these people are included in the body of christ and not sort of shoveled off to classrooms and never welcomed back right <laughs> kevin you're also a parent albeit your children uh, older children. Your children are are grown like, how yeah. do you think about it, too, as a parent? I, I would say it's a beautiful thing when your children of any age, whether they're uh, grade schoolers or junior highers or high schoolers or college beyond, uh, my children are all adults now, to see them participate in communion. It's, it doesn't get any less overwhelming hmm. when my kids come forward, and if I happen to be serving them and say the body of Christ for you and the blood of Christ for you, I almost weep every time. It's such a beautiful thing. And... The pastor side of me says, don't, don't, don't feel pressure. What Libby said, don't feel pressure about participating. Just participate. Like you can have some, some say in this decision, but why not lean into the deep wisdom of the church, which the CRC has just spent a lot of time thinking about all over again, to say our biases towards participation and towards inclusion. And why not, I mean, discern, I go back to discerning the body and blood of Christ. None of us know really what's going on, but to say, but to taste it and to take it in and have that be food for our soul in some way and have that be giving us a grace beyond us, you almost want to say, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you want to participate in that? And then if baptism is the, you know, the practice on the way in, that's the beginning, and communion becomes this remembering our baptism every single week in some ways, that we have died and risen with Christ. It's beautiful. Well, you know, normally here on the Curious Church podcast, we like to ask questions and open more doorways to conversation. But you know what I think we did today? We slammed the door shut. <laughs> <laughs> we figured it out. 
the final answer. We have answers and solutions. Aaron's obviously been listening to a conversation where we framed the whole thing with, we'll never quite grasp it all. <laughs> but it, I, I look forward to conversations with people about this, if they have questions, yeah. and uh, with my own kids, as I kind of mentioned earlier. So um, I'm, uh, I'm grateful for this. I think this is going to be a cool step for us as a church. And uh, um, as us as part of the larger body, as yeah, well. that's so well said. Like I think the invitation at the end is to continue to be curious, which we're always about, mm. but then also like to really view this as an invitation to joy. Like when I heard uh, Aaron, you and Libby, and even Kevin talk about this, there's sort of a deep joy that sort of even in the anticipation mm-hmm. of what this would look like can bring, and the joy of conversations you get to have with with your children, maybe with other people. Um, curiosity, I think, breeds joy when it's done when it's done in its best way, and so that's what we hope this conversation has helped do too. Well, listeners, you did it. You listened to another episode. I don't know how you did it, but you made it to the end. Uh, so uh, let's say goodbye. Let's do it. Okay. Until next time, friends. I'm Aaron. I'm Libby. I'm Kevin, and I'm Matt. Thanks for being curious with us. Mm-hmm.